0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week we head back to the start of Paul's solo career. In 1989, Paul Weller found himself without a band and recording deal for the first time since he was 18. After taking time off for most of 1990, he returned to the road at the tail end of that year, touring as the Paul Weller Movement. The comeback is on, and my guest was part of it, bass player Paul Francis. Part of the Paul Weller Movement, ahead of that very first solo album. We'll hear all about those early days after the end of the Style Council, Life on the Road with Paul Weller, Steve White, and bizarrely Max Beasley, which we'll get into as well. Yes, the Hollywood actor. So let's dive straight in. Paul Francis, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, sir. You're welcome. We're going to get into so much interesting stuff about, I guess, what I'm going to call the return of Paul Weller and the Paul Weller movement and your role in that as well. And a really exciting time. But before we get to that, I want to kick off with when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller, because I understand you were a bit of a punk. Would that be right?
0: Uh, I was into the punk movement, yeah, but I wasn't really a punk because I had really long hair. Well, I had an afro, actually, Dan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's allowed in the punk world, wasn't it? I mean, I've got a bit of an afro going on at the moment as well, to be fair.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I just like music. I love punk music. I I loved it. I was into the Pistols and The Clash, but I was also into other things, you know, like funk and reggae. So um, right across the board, Dan, really. Because I was living in Camden. It was a hub of... Of music in the seventies and like late seventies, early eighties, I used to see these jam sort of posters up and about, and oh, who's this? You know, who's this band? Sort of thing. And to be honest, it wasn't really until the Style Council that I really did sort of begin to sort of understand what that you know about Paul and stuff. So, but I remember seeing all the jam posters up and around town, and thinking, oh, this looks this looks interesting. You know. And what was it about so the sort of Style
1: Council? And we're going to touch on your friendship and work with Steve, Steve White, the drummer from the Style Council, and from um, from Mickey Torbert, who's come up a lot on this podcast as being an amazing. Mm. Fun guy, super talented guy. But what was it about the Style Council, do you think, that really stood out?
0: If you compare the two, they are kind of worlds apart, really, musically, aren't they? The jam and the Style Council. For the 80s, there was that kind of soul element that started to get introduced into a lot of people's music. But I think about when, when Paul wrote songs, they were, they were a bit deeper, sort of lyrically. Even though the music may have been sort of slightly softer than the jam, I think lyrically, the his music was like ahead of a lot of the other sort of bands around at the time. And that's what I really liked about that, that sort of juxtaposition between the, the music and the hard edge of the lyrics, really. That's what I liked about it. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, they certainly packed a punch. And um, you mentioned kind of living in Camden at that time, you're talking about um, amazing live venues, but also some yep. great clubs. I mean, that must have been really, and it's ex- a really exciting time to be in and amongst that place in London.
0: It was amazing. Well, a lot. I and mean, the thing is, I always refer to the venues... As as they were originally, like the jazz cafe. The jazz cafe to me is Barclays Bank, because that's what it was. <laughs> oh, was it? But, really? But yeah. So people say, Oh, do you fancy going down to a jazz cafe? I say, I believe you mean Barclays Bank, surely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i didn't know that that's brilliant i was all i'm thinking about now is like, that must be why the soundproofing was so good at the jazz cafe because <laughs> it's a bank <laughs> it's those steel walls i mean i've i've seen like on you sound in there and like um adrian sherwood and stuff and you're like how how is this not bleeding outside this is so loud and it's because it was a bank. that answers every question
0: the tnc was i can't remember it's called something it's been called loads of different things but That was called something else, and but because I was there for forty years, obviously before I moved out, but I watched it all change. But I was there for the opening week of Dingwalls because I bunked in. I climbed in the bog windows at the back, and that was really (laughs) that was really good.
1: (laughs) Dingwalls was amazingly influential as a venue and and a scene, really, as much as anything else, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, definitely. And also, um, I've noticed looking back that there was varied musical acts on from night to night which is great if you're growing up and learning, you know, trying to get in, involved in music and it, it wasn't any particular style. And that's what I really liked about Dingles. You could go one night and see a blues, you could see punk, you could see anything down there. It was great. But I must tell you this, I did pay to get in eventually. <laughs> i take your word for it. And at which point do you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm
1: soaking all this up, but I, I want to work in music. At which point did you go, I'm going to pick up an instrument. I'm going to learn how to play.
0: Well, I think it was probably about 79 when I first, because I did my first sort of professional gig and tour in 79. And I, wasn't quite sure if I would be able or capable to do it, but it was the people around me that kind of said, come on, man, you, you're good enough, you can do it. And there was other people believing in me more than I believed in myself at the time, and it kind of got me kickstarted, really. And was it always the bass? Well, actually, <laughs> actually, I started playing guitar when I was about 16, but it was too hard. Oh. So what did you do? do you what, you too hard, too many strings? Yeah, so I cut two off. And it was <laughs> well, I didn't know, seriously, I did, yeah. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not that
1: simple, surely. I suppose it is. I haven't really thought about it. I haven't really thought about
0: this. Yeah, I suppose it is. Right, you're right. No instrument's easier, which I learned to my detriment later on in life. But you know, when you're 16 or 17, it's like a mathematical equation. Four is less than six.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a journey into Paul's comeback as a solo artist in a sec, and you being part of that weller movement. But to get there, we have to start with with Whitey so Steve White, yeah. the Star Council, and you with the James Taylor Quartet. So tell me about this. How does how does this work?
0: Right. Well, basically, we had a mutual friend, a drummer called Harbins, who was who had, I think he was with Animal Nightlife at the time, and he was a hmm. friend of Steve's and a friend of mine. And Harbins and I used to play quite a lot together. And he mentioned that James Taylor was looking for uh, a guy to do the Starsky and Hutch sessions. So he sort of got in touch with Steve and then you know, it didn't happen because I had to go to America to do another album, but that was the general initial connection between Steve and I. And then you move into um, Galliano,
1: which um, for those that don't know, was it was the first signing, the first band on Acid Jazz Records, which was um, Eddie Pillar and Jill um, Peterson's record label. Yeah. They then did a bunch of stuff on Talking Loud, which was the record label that yourself set up after that and had these huge big top 40 albums of Plot thickened there's a joyful noise unto the creator. So how did you get involved in Galliana? Because I gather at the start it was kind of you. Mick Talbert, Steve, um, obviously the Style Council guys, Roberto Galliano or Rob Gallagher. I'm not sure which one to go with. <laughs> what did you call him?
0: Um, Rob. <laughs> okay. I always sense. thought calling him Galliano was a bit rude. You know, if he came up to me and said, "Oh, Francis, come here, I'd feel annoyed. Because yeah, yeah. so, Steve and I were doing JTQ and we got on quite well musically. And uh, then he, he was really on the, he was really trying to, you know, get stuff happening. So he, he, he hooked up with Rob and obviously Mick was around. So, he, you know, Mick was on board with that and then he gave me a ring so we had this little trio going on we started to do that but it was the same time as as Paul so we had to sort of juggle things around really it was a bit tricky because the week we started rehearsing with Paul we also had this TV with Rob and we had to cancel the first couple of days of rehearsal for Paul and I, I, I I was a bit embarrassed by that to be honest I mean I, I could have got he wouldn't have fired Steve or Mick but he could have fired <laughs> me <laughs> and now
1: the, the Paul Weller story wouldn't be a, the Paul Weller story without touching on Steve White because I think he's drumming um, throughout the Style Council through the solo years it became such an important part of that sound um, I know he's a friend so this might you know this might be a little embarrassing if he's listening but please tell us what is what is it that makes Steve White so great why, why is he such a great drummer?
0: On a personal level he's hilarious he's one of the funniest guys I've ever ever met he's funny and he's really smart as well right? at the first level technically he's an amazing player I mean for those who watched him within the style council and outside and all the other things he's done the jazz thing he's done the pop thing he's done they'll know technically he's an amazing player and when you put all those things together, his personality and his playing, what you get is Steve really.
1: This is the point where the Style Council's final album has been rejected so modernism, uh, Polydor say no Paul takes a little bit of a break, I, I actually thought it was a longer break but actually, I hadn't realised like 1990 is back performing live when you read articles in the past now it makes it sound like he's kind of been looking after his kids for like five years or something but it's, it seems like it's just six months, he makes out it was like a house husband for ages, how do you hear that Paul wants to get back into playing and, and how does the movement come about
0: with gigs like this because they are pretty big gigs you know it's all a slightly hush hush and it's like you get a phone call and listen are you free on a certain day and you say yeah and you say why so I can't tell you Bong. You're say, okay, <laughs> so, um, I knew there was something on the boil but I wasn't quite sure what it was and I, I could I, I completely understand why you don't want to give too much information away on an on artist like that. So eventually I get the call, I've got to get down to Solid Bond, which I think was Paul's studio, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I went down there and took the bass... And it was Steve that got got me that connection. He said, Look, "Just come down, and have a play." And he didn't say anything about a band or a tour. He so said, "Just come have a play and see how you know, see what happens." So I went in the room, and you know, Paul was there. Uh, I panicked inwardly. Inwardly, I panicked. Sat down, and uh, yeah, so we just started playing. But he started, Paul started playing "The Ghetto" by uh, Donny Hathaway, and there's a math, it, really fat groove on that tune, and I kind of knew it really well. So I just kind of sat in there and started playing, and it all sort of gelled together. And from that moment, I think is. Was the beginning of my involvement with Paul really? And what's the time gap between that?
1: Um, I'm not going to call that an audition. That just sounds like a. Uh, I mean, that, an audition makes it sound like a job interview, whereas that just sounds like a blast playing with some mates. <laughs> but what's the time gap between between that audition in inverted commas uh, and and getting back on the road? I don't think it was that long. I mean,
0: it was in the so it's a little while ago. It didn't. Well, it didn't appear to me to be that long before I knew it. We, you know, he brought us into um, into Nomis, which is a. a Amazing! I don't know if it's still there or not. Rehearsal, Ramon, by Simon Napier Bell in West London, and uh, we were in Studio Two, which is one of the bigger studios upstairs. And I remember us being there for two weeks, but I don't remember, the, you know, the timeframe we've been. Between me meeting Paul and with that first audition, that's uh, yeah. I can't remember, Dan. I'm sorry. The purpose of those two weeks are what? To kind of work out what the set
1: list is. Obviously, rehearsals, but as much I suppose those those very early gigs, and we'll touch on the Klingwalls one in a second, which launched it all. But that's right, um, yeah, yeah. I so think. much of it is him digging back into the the jam, back into the style council. There's not a huge amount of new material, so presumably there's a there's a lot of discussion about well, which which song, which of the older songs should he play.
0: There was that, and I, I don't think we were. Well, the rhythm section wasn't necessarily part of that equation about what, what the material was going to be. But obviously with the brass section, they needed to know for their arrangements. So they were more hooked into what was being, you know, what, what the tunes were going to be. But I can not remember. We played quite a few tunes. Did we not like into tomorrow and cosmos? Wasn't that not? Were you at Dingles then? Did you go to
1: Dingles? I didn't go to Dingles. I've seen this. Actually, I've got the set list here. Let's go through it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so this is the November the 1st, 1990. So over 30 years ago. So to be fair, yeah. you know, all of our memories are going to be pretty jaded from that, that length of time, if, if only for what we've all been through for the past year, to be fair. But, yeah, this is Dingles, the first gig, uh, the first solo gig, but it's called the Paul Weller Movement. Kicks off with Cosmos. What a banging yeah. tune. So this is a new song, a new one to the repertoire. Then we've got My Ever-Changing Moods. Homebreakers, yeah. the Style Council, Round and Round, which is again another new tune, Strange yeah. Museum, which was um, I know written with Mick Talbot, but um, but off the first solo album. Just like Yesterday, that spiritual feeling. These are all songs. I mean, spiritual feelings and instrumental. Here's a new thing, mm-hmm. Precious, which is a jam song. Work to Do, which I think is an Icy Brothers song. If I'm in... Brothers, yeah. And the Loved, which um, was a B-side later on. So it's a. Um, I mean, it's not a massively familiar set list, but there's enough there to, for people to go, Oh yeah, I know this one. It is a new one. I know this one. But it's a different. Song. And I think it's a really funky sound. And I think if you look back on those videos and stuff, the, the dynamics of the band, it's very different to the Style Council. It's very different to his final yeah. work with the Style Council, this kind of house album. How would you define that sound as being part of that mix?
0: Well, I think that because of the acid jazz thing, that fusion of those two types of music, that opened up as well. So blues started to be part of that and soul and funk started to be part of the organic, you know, ground that you could sort of grab ideas from. And, and even rock, you know, like Rare Earth... Is it Rare Earth? Who's that band on? that? in um, jazz. Mother Earth. Mother Earth, that was yes. it, yeah. That was kind of, they, they sort of, all these bands, and it, the whole scene started to open up a bit and allowing a lot of influences to come in. That's my, only my personal opinion, but I think that's possibly why, why it was so varied in terms of the... Uh, musical you know the, the genres in that in that set really the other thing about that time is it all looks so sh- you guys all look so sharp man <laughs> oh yes because of Nikki, that was wasn't it
1: oh yeah. So Nikki weller who um, has been on the, on the on the podcast recently was what your stylists or the wardrobe or what
0: yes well she was like that sort of stylist stroke head mistress used to keep <laughs> us in line you know get that shirt on now you look crap in that it's like yeah it was great <laughs> it was great <laughs>
1: Brilliant, John Weller's here this time as well. So he's still Paul's manager. He's he's sorting these gigs, and we'll talk about the the travels across Europe that you go on 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 this tour as well. But he was such a you know such a key part of the success of Paul's career all the way through.
0: Thing is, you knew John was coming before he arrived. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was just like, here he comes. You know, (laughs) you could just feel him in the building. It was amazing, really. Great character, John, actually. Love, lovely guy. Only dealings, really, were financial with him, really, and f- f- a few small conversations, but nothing bad to say about John, man. Was he
1: carrying around the briefcase full of cash still at this point? <laughs> Might have been. <laughs> you can't say for tax purposes, Sorry. <laughs> 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 um, so that first gig is at Dingwalls. What can you remember about that first gig with the movement live on stage? And how can you remember? Was it was it packed out? Was it a decent crowd? It
0: was it was really busy, and I remember the stage. Well, it's a small stage, and I remember I was you know I, I remember looking around at Steve, and I was like it's a sort of crap like this. And Max, the uh, vibes player, stroke actor,
1: Max Beasley, who yeah, we would now know as a, as a big Hollywood actor back then was what playing keys? Is that right? Uh, keys and
0: vibes, yeah.
1: Keys and vibes.
0: I know, I know, I know. I can't believe it. When I see him on TV now, I'm sort of going,
1: no, you know. I want to get Max on because I'd I'd love to hear this story. But um, that's, I mean, it's such an interesting lineup. So yeah, sorry, fill us back in, Dingles. So so you're you're looking across at each other in this this tiny stage, yeah. Well, yeah, the whole thing,
0: like tiny stage, but Paul, you know, juxtaposed against each other you know wow we're on stage with Paul in a tiny little club but in a way I think you know a lot of bands started like that through the 60s and 70s anyway a lot of the big bands started in small clubs the Marquee and the Dingles also had that sort of vibe to it so it was really really electric was flying around it was an amazing feeling really and that band was quite big for Dingles to be honest I don't know how they got them on stage if <laughs> they did <laughs>
1: And what's the feeling at the time? Because obviously this is not Wembley Arena. This is not the Royal Albert Hall. This is not Glastonbury Festival. This is not what Paul had been used to with the jam and the Style Council. It's much smaller. Did it feel like he had something to prove? Was it relaxed? Was it, you know, actually he's angry or he's just kind of chilled about the whole thing?
0: I think all three... It depends, you know, because like, I've been, well, I'm fronting in my own band now, but I was always like a session guy, so I never really understood the pressure that was on the man at the front. And I think you can go through all those three things. You can go through ecstasy, you can go through anger, you can go through depression. You know, if you're at the front, it's a really big job. And I think when I look back on that period now, I can see when, you know, the quiet moments when Paul didn't seem to respond was he had a lot of stuff on his mind, and you know, I can totally see that now. But having said that, he always delivered. You know, it doesn't matter where he was playing. It always delivered. It's a learning curve. You know, when, you, when you're working with someone like that and you watch that amount of sort of professional, I, I call it professionalism really, but
1: hmm.
0: it's incredible to watch really.
1: So that first gig in London, and then you would, usually you would expect to go on a um, a UK tour. But the first thing you do is go to Europe. So you go to um, Turin, Milan, Hanover, Hamburg, oh. Berlin, Amsterdam. I mean, that must have been incredible.
0: It was brilliant. It was great. It was great. I mean, although having said that, I've pretty much done that a few times in the past. The same sort of, you know, you always end up going to the same countries. You know, you mean it's always like France, Germany, Italy, Holland. You know, the, when you're going touring with these bands, you always end up going to the same places. But it was it was different with Paul. It was a slightly step up. Do you know what I mean? So it was a step up in terms of the reception you got in both the gigs and the hotels and everywhere else. And it was it was ah. Uh, Oh, I'll never forget it to be honest
1: really and I imagine it's the first time a lot of, a, a lot of these songs have been played live but also the style council towards the end didn't, didn't tour a huge amount so it's the first time he's back in some of those venues and those countries for the first time for a while and you are back playing universities and polytechnics so like I mentioned this feels much smaller it feels much more intimate but nonetheless the crowds are still really up for it right that's right and at this point he's kind of starting to get more um put more jam songs in the set more style council songs in the set and i'm gonna go, i'm gonna kind of run through a few of the tracks as well because it must have been go amazing on, it must have been amazing to be playing some of these which are you know proper classics so how she threw it all away head starts to happen oh. what a tune speak like a child yeah it's a very deep sea every time you chuck one of these new ones in you must have been like going, oh, wow, yeah, this is great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely. And also, I've just found those, you know, those rehearsals they put up, I don't know if they're in Paul's archive, you know, the ones on YouTube. Yeah. the deep seas there, isn't it? Yeah. I, you know, when I listen back to those now, man, it was just like... Amazing, really.
1: That's such a good um, song, because that was also the one that they closed the um, the Star Council documentary with telling the last year. It was like a little surprise with the band back together. Yeah. That, that tune just stacks up. It's such a great tune, isn't it? Beautiful, isn't it? The tour finishes with two nights at the Town and Country Club in London, and, and live on the BBC. Now, was it live, live, or pre-recorded live, yeah. if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, live,
0: live. It was like a gig, and they just... Brought all their
1: gear and recorded it. Is that in the back of your mind when you're playing? Like, oh crap, I'm on the radio.
0: Um, not really. Well, no, no, not really, because essentially it was the end of a tour. So, you know, you've, anything you were going to mess up, you would have already done. And you kind of knew where you were. You knew what your job was. The engine room was running nicely and you just walk on and you play. And there happens to be recording it. That was all it was, essentially, really. So, uh, the fact- did they record a- oh, the second night down? Which night did they record? Do you know? I'm not sure because I know it's I know the full thing is on the third
1: there's like this um what was it Weller at the BBC box set, wasn't there? It? And it's like yeah, right. this is a, obviously it's a really short period, but the time spent on the road there with that band, you sound so tight. I mean, how does that come about? Because you know and you mentioned like the last night of the tour you'd expect to be, but that takes hard that's hard work, isn't it, to get to sound that good.
0: Yeah, it is hard work. I mean, every every musician works hard, but it's a, it's the um it's the group of players that are working together that are working collectively. If if you're thinking collectively And working collectively And you've got a talent It's all going to sort of gel And obviously Steve and I Had already toured together So we had a connection With Galliano With, you know We had a connection with Mick And actually, no I think I did a session with him Didn't they have a thing called A guy called Pumpkin or something Do you know this? uh, And that's a jazz Sort of compilation album And they asked Steve and Mick's put a track together so I went in the studio and did it with them I'll send it to you okay. but obviously, even then you know we'd already recorded with Steve but the point I'm making is I'd already recorded with Steve and Mick toured with uh, Steve and toured with Steve and Mick and Galliano so when we got to Paul it wasn't like we didn't know each other we didn't understand how each other played together so that really helped to get that band I think the rhythm section sitting comfortably when we started to work with Paul essentially that's what I think it was
1: and how directive is Paul in terms of saying what he wants and don't do that, do it this way, or or actually is it kind of fairly loose and it's you're jamming together and having a great time or
0: yeah. I think so, but you know what? I I think he gives he, he gave us quite a load of leeway, really. And what I like about that is, you know, he, he gives you a load of leeway and you're sort of playing away and all of a sudden you'll just stop it and say, No, don't do that. It's like, okay, fair. Fair, but it's not like every 10 seconds, I no, don't do that, don't. He kind of gives you a little bit of leeway and then when it's not happening, it will stand up and tell you no. And I really appreciate that, you know, because then you're getting guidance plus your kind of, your input is appreciated as well, which I quite like. At this point, so I mentioned
1: John, well, I have to also mention Kenny Wheeler. So Kenny's uh, the the um, tour manager.
0: Kenny was a sort of, road, I guess you call him road manager, tour manager. And um, every time, I mean, we did quite a few dates, obviously. So every time we got on the bus... He'd sort of count everybody, you know, one, two, three, which is okay the first week, but three weeks said, you know, like you're knackered, you just want to get to your deep sleep. And he says, No, wait a minute, I've got to count everybody. So I said, Ken, like, man, why do you have to count everybody? He goes, Well, I think it was the style council, tour, said, so I left somebody at these services. I said, oh, Who was that? He goes, Oh, Mick Tulbert. <laughs> Imagine driving off a mix, Driving off a mix Back at the
1: stage Yeah exactly I mean, And no disrespect it, I mean that band Was Mick Paul At the very beginning It's like yeah. Oh my god That's so funny The Town and Country Club So that last gig as a, of, of you with the Paul Weller movement You've listened back To that since right
0: Yeah Well I had it on cassette Because I recorded the broad, the. Is it Radio 2 I can't remember If it's Radio 1 or 2 Thing is If you say Radio 2 It sounds like Old people's music So I'm going to say Radio 1 right I, I had it on tape literally i think when i broadcast it or somebody recorded it so i've had it on cassette since we'd done it and so i've been listening to it you know i finished the gig i went home i listened to it and in the last 30 years i've always stuck it on just to sort of um to reflect and have a listen you know and um I was listening to it last night again. There
1: you go. It's a great sound. I mean, the the set list, the songs, everybody looks so cool. Like the whole
0: thing just was really lovely. Do you think some of that is to do with the live sound of BBC? I mean, the, the guys, the live sound guys at the TNC are amazing. But it might have been the way the BBC captured that performance as well. I mean, you've got—I so mean—give them some applause for that as well. I think Dan, do you think?
1: You can hear the sound of everybody. You know, you're coming through as bass. You're, you know, you're hearing the trumpets. You're hearing. Sometimes if the whole thing sounds a bit muddy and everybody's just kind of in the mix together, you know, whereas actually the processing on that or, the, or whatever they've done in post to make that sound good for the radio is um, is brilliant. I have to say, yeah. But it's a good. But you <laughs> can also feel the vibe of that gig and the kind of energy from the band playing off each other.
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it is a bit tricky because it's Paul's gig and you can't be too you know you've got to maintain some kind of decorum but you can't be standing there stiff as a board so you kind of be, you know you've got to be careful how you deal with a gig like that and um, I enjoyed it you know I tried to maintain some kind of decorum while I was playing if you know what I mean mm. so.
1: Did you know that would be your your last gig with the Paul Weller movement at that time? i
0: tell you that I mean and this is not This is just how it went. I think that um, the musical direction changed, and I wasn't suitable for that new direction of music because I came out of the acid jazz soul thing. I think he was going into a new area of music, and it sounds great. That I mean, I I, I can see where where he was going with that, and I, 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 you know, I think it's good. Really, I applaud him, you know, for doing that, you know, so. And what do you think of the past 30
1: years? So when you kind of listen to, you know, the new stuff that Paul puts out from, I say new, this is 30 years ago now, but from this first solo album to Wildwood, Stanley Road, and all the way through to On Sunset, are you, are you still in a, a fan? Are you still dipping it? I think
0: I I think I am. And, what I, you know, I, I tell you what, the good thing about not playing with Paul anymore is I can actually be a fan, if you know what I mean, Yeah, and listen other than, oh, I've got to learn this tune, or I've got to learn that tune. I can actually sit back and listen and watch him progress in his songwriting, which is, that's a, that's a blessing, really, I think, to be honest. Yeah. And not being encumbered with that worry about, you know, what my part in that is just to have a listen to what's going on. It's great, you know. Yeah.
1: Um, now, a couple of things, other things to touch on. Um, so, Midge Yew you played with. So, um, yeah. Ultra, Ultravox.
0: Midge was a pop star, basically, and he was in a band called Slick. And he, between Ultravox and Slick, he had this band called The Rich Kids, And uh, the the rich kid's guitar player was a friend of mine. And that's how I I got that connection with Midge. And um, we went over to his house to do some recording. He lived in Chiswick. Spent a couple of days with him there which i don't know what happened to that recording and
1: the other one that i was going to ask you about was steve um and i hope i'm pronouncing this right steve hillage oh yes and i'll be honest i don't know anything about steve but i'm i part of one of the things i love about this podcast is that i'm it's opening me up to new music and new experiences as well so talk to me about steve and talk to me about that experience because this sounds really interesting exciting
0: okay so steve come from uh, the prog rock and he had he was involved in a band called Gong, who are still going now. And uh, there were two gongs eventually. There was this kind of sort of really freaky prog rock gong and a sort of jazz fusion gong. There was Gong 1 and Gong 2, and Steve was involved in that. Yeah. But in his solo career, he used um, a couple of guys. from he, he made about five or six albums, of which I did one. But he also used the guys from Stevie Wonder's band for the record Before Us called Green and Motivation Radio. So he was into the funk thing as well. And that's what attracted me to Steve. I mean, he approached me, but when I heard what he was doing, I thought, oh, man, this is great. You know, when I heard the earlier albums and the funky sort of rhythm section from the earlier albums. Right. Uh, And that's what got me attracted to, to working with him, essentially, yeah. We did the album open and then we did the tour. Pretty much did the same gigs. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> same venues <laughs> yeah yeah we did uh hammersmith well it's, it's called the bats what's it called now apollo, what's the i one don't it know is? anymore it's been so long since i've been to a gig i can't remember That's where, you know whenever you ended up in london you used to do the apollo but paul did a tnc but usually yeah so the apollo was the one you always ended up at when i did the steve apollo when i did the apollo gig with steve i went up on the tube and um because all the gear was there and i went home and got you know, chilled out and went back to the gig. And I was on the tube with all the people going to the gig it was great <laughs> and then and when it, I got to the gig I was playing I them, looking at me going oh wasn't he on the
1: tube?" <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is teaching because as well as the playing um, and the sessions and all that you're also involved in um, teaching other people to play which is lovely and I used to live around Guildford area and I'm a massive fan of the ACM and I know you've done some work with them which is the oh, Academy, right. academy right. of Contemporary Music they're a fabulous crew down there so t- talk to me about the teaching how does that work and, and how has it worked in a remote world as well over, over Over zoom and all that
0: the music industry changed around sort of 80s to 90s with technology and it kind of the the world that we worked in got smaller and smaller and narrower and narrower because of technology so a lot of pro musicians most of the guys i know have gone into teaching to supplement their income and around about sort of 92 93 the musicians institute popped up uh, in whopping and because i have done pool and stuff like that, they were looking for established musicians to be part of the teaching, their group of teachers. So I started working in Wapping and then just stayed teaching for like 15 years, essentially. went from the uh, Musicians Institute to the ACM, then to BIM in Brighton and then Solent University because i moved out of town. Uh, obviously, none of those places are operating, so it's all remote now. But the thing is, I can actually watch what they're doing um, and I can see on the screen whether they're, you know, making errors with their technique and stuff. So it hasn't changed that much, but it's not as easy as it sounds actually um, because the communication of sending data both ways. Hasn't really been sorted out with any of these uh, video conferencing apps. You can't stream five people playing live in separate areas because it's not possible with, with, with technology at the moment. So yeah. it, it, they need to sort it out. And they, you know everyone's having the same problem now before we go um a couple of final questions for
1: you you have to tell me about funky alchemy capricorn one because there are well links to this as well with mickey talbert from the style council and also i think and i'm going to get the pronunciation wrong but um gerard presenza was he with was he with
0: i'm sure
1: i'm sure he played trumpet with a with and maybe the style council i'm going to get slaughtered on the socials for not knowing exactly this but i'm sure he played with anyway tell me what it is
0: okay right so (laughs) basically Same old lot. You're going to get bored. Same old names keep appearing. So it's myself and Harvins and Mick, uh, and we went to a studio in Greenwich called Wood Wharf, and we knocked out some grooves. And we spent three days just—it was just to get together to play. There was no plans for it. And we got together, and we come out. With, we almost come out after three days with an album's worth of material. So we thought, yeah, man, let's go in the studio and record it. So we went to El Studios in south west london which i don't believe is there anymore and we set the rhythm section down put the parts down and we just call people in to play you know to overdub horns and guitar and congas and then th- that set of tracks became available so we self-funded that album back to the funk and jazz stuff but rock it's and there's this
1: track it kind of opens with Ind- india's groove is the first track with um Har- yeah. Harbans on drums and man alive, it's just great the way that comes in. And then you'll go along for the ride. So these
0: are, and these are all instrumentals, right? They are all instrumental songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is. I do like singers. So I'm going to any good singers, Dan. <laughs> Is it because none of you could sing? <laughs> exactly. That's it. That's totally it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Mickey Talbot sung a few with the Style Council.
0: He did, didn't he? We should have yeah, got yeah. it.
1: Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Um, and what are you doing with it now, then? Because there's like, this band camp thing, right?
0: Well, what it was, um, I got my PRS statement through last year, and I realised they were using a couple of the tracks on TV, or the BBC were using one of the tracks. And I only discovered that, like, um, in my PRS statement. So I thought, oh... I could maybe like start promoting it now it's out there and I had a band called Capricorn One and I was playing the tune in that band anyway we kind of rearranged it and stuff and so I got the tracks back together again and I remastered them and I released them Um, and they're on Bandcamp right now
1: well I shall put the links in the show notes for the podcast Um, this has been an absolute joy I have two final questions for you Paul you are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the Style Council or Weller solo which one are you going to go with?
0: I think it's going to be very deep sea personally I love it I love it The Style Council
1: version or the version you played with the movement? I'm
0: going to say Style Council version because that's uh, without that version, I wouldn't have been able to play what I did. So definitely Style Council version.
1: And then the final question is the reason for this podcast to exist is so that I can get an interview with Paul Weller, uh, the one that I missed throughout my entire radio broadcast career. If I do secure that interview, (laughs) he's laughing. If I do get that interview, what should I talk about, Paul? Is there a burning question you'd love the man to answer? Yeah,
0: why did you fire me, Paul? Why did you fire me? (laughs) <laughs> awkward <laughs> now, to be honest you know what i'd like to ask him because uh, i don't know if this is going to go on a podcast but he was having a few problems personal problems at the time and uh, i'd like to know that he's happy now that my question was will be to him are you happy now paul uh
1: paul this has been an absolute joy thank you so much for your time i've loved every second of this i really appreciate it man
0: Great, man. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. It's been great. I've
1: enjoyed it. My thanks once again to Paul Francis. So lovely to hear all about the start of Paul's solo career from another angle. If you've enjoyed this episode and the series so far, then please give it a plug on your social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Check out the show notes for more information, including details about Capricorn One and that Paul Weller live at the BBC gig we were talking about. And while you're there, you can even buy me a virtual coffee. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.
0: early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to pretty litter.com and use code ACast for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details
1: when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer